0: another episode of Holy and Human. I was thinking this podcast has slowly sort of progressed and evolved into the topics that we are that are like lighting us up spiritually currently in our lives that we want to talk about with each other. Yeah, which makes it so much like more exciting in yeah. a way.
1: This week has been pretty busy, so we've barely had a chance to connect. So I kept thinking, well, we got a podcast, so I can talk to you.
0: Well, that, <laughs> but you actually you had some chances to talk to me about it, and you said, well, no, I want to save this. Yeah. For the podcast, and I had something else. I was like, I want to save this for the <laughs> podcast. So now, when we have like a spiritual topic or something that's moving us in some way, changing us, then we kind of try to. Reserve it for podcast time. Yeah, but let's let's dive into topic. Oh, you're ready to go. I'm ready to go. Okay. Can I do my topic first, or you want to do your topic
1: well, first? Well, I guess because so. my top my topic might be a whole podcast.
0: My topic might be also a whole podcast.
1: Okay, we'll I'll let you go first.
0: Or it might not be. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So the thing that has sort of inspired moved me made me think in a different way. Um, this past week is this essay that Freud wrote in 1917 called Mourning and Melancholy and basically where did you find this um, I heard about it through um, another podcast This Young Ian Life and mm-hmm. that sort of ignited my interest in it and so in it it's, he wrote it in the wake of World War One. basically compared Mourning and grieving to this feeling of melancholy, which is melancholy. I think is an interesting state to talk about these days because it's not really a contemporary diagnosis. You know, like I would say, um, hard. We can't really compare it to clinical depression because that could be like chemical or um, there's a lot of different factors involved, and we've gone like it's it's such a broad term, melancholy. Um,
1: well, side note. Mm-hmm. I know Jung and also Freud were, because of Jung, talked a lot about uh, Marcelo Ficino, which was this philosopher that talked about the archetypes of the planet's influence on different states, and melancholia mm-hmm. was like a big thing. And so there was a lot of balancing your life based on these, it's almost like Ayurveda, this idea of like, do you have too much heat? Do you need more yeah. of this mm-hmm. opposing energy? So they would look at your life in terms of how much of like that melancholy energy Yeah. and how to, what is that, this damp heaviness as a quality. And then what's like kind of the opposite of that and how do we balance these things? Yeah. So uh, I think when, when we say melancholy to us in 2023, yeah. that's like a really different Understanding what that is first when they were saying.
0: Yeah. And I believe the term like also was used in medieval ages as like, and said you had too much black bile in you and stuff. So they, they did relate it somewhat to chemicals and, you know, disposition, all that. But the way he talks about it is he's like mourning and grief is when we're mourning something in our lives, it could be a person or it could be a job or a potential or a dream or whatever it is, but we know what it is. We are mourning something that we can identify. And so even if we're going through a very difficult time, we usually are able to process it, accept it and move on and hopefully grow from the experience where he said, melancholy, we're mourning something that we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. We haven't been able to identify it. So mm-hmm. basically the difference is grieving something consciously or grieving something unconsciously. And I thought that was such a good sort of metaphor f- because... What was
1: the term they used for grieving consciously? Uh, uh, mourning. Okay. So
0: mourning versus melancholy. And I thought it was a cool metaphor or a, a way to reframe emotions are things we might be going through because if you think, so he said the symptoms can be very similar where we might have this feeling of like, there's like, we've lost our joy in life. We might not feel like there's a lot of meaning. We might feel existentially lost, um, lack of energy. Mm. Um, but in melancholy, when we can't identify it, it may be something we're unaware of. And so then he he basically said, melancholy is a state sometimes we can't recover from, um, because we may be constantly mourning something we're not aware of. Mm. Um, so I thought it was an interesting way of phrasing it to think of if you are feeling depressed, emotionally lost, is there something you're mourning that you're not aware of? You know,
1: it's a really good question. And it actually is tied into the topic I was going to say. I was kind of hoping that would happen. (laughs) There's the synchronicity. I'm like, that's actually really interesting because I think the most powerful thing of what I wanted to talk about, it actually is what you're talking about. But I want to make sure you finish before I tell you. Well,
0: I don't really have much more to say about that except for I was thinking also in the wake of like COVID, I think everybody has been more deeply affected than even were able to sort of process Mm because that was such a big event. Um, and I think there's the things we can identify that we're mourning like, oh, we're mourning. Uh, I lost that job or I'm mourning that I'm struggling more financially. or I'm literally mourning people I knew who passed away during the pandemic. Um, but then there might be other things like perhaps before COVID you had a sense of more safety, that things were going to be okay. And so that might be an unconscious emotion, you're mourning and don't realize it. Um,
1: I think we all collectively went from a more green, new, I guess you could say almost naive energy mm-hmm. to like, we've all lived through some shit. And yeah. and so there is a kind of feeling of, yeah, the tentativeness of life or... yeah, I saw a funny like tweet the other day that was like, Um, I just want to have modern day problems, not like 1600s problems of like living through a pandemic and, um, price of eggs, (laughs) price of eggs. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it just feels, yeah, there's, I think a melancholy hanging over people that is hard to like grieving normalcy because it is hard to process. And even though a lot of themes of sessions recently has been like, things are getting back to normal, but there's still a different Mm -hmm. normal and, uh, even with job hirings or companies and Mm -hmm. stuff, there's less risk taking for most hires. And there's also dating is still kind of funky for a lot of people. So yeah, it's, it makes sense to be like, how can I consciously mourn this or what am I feeling in my body? And how do I kind of bring it more up to awareness?
0: You know, I think grief is such an intense emotion. It's, it's, one of, I think the biggest experiences we go through as humans and it's, it's, I tell people to treat grief like an animal of like, it has to just have its own life and run its own course because it's too much for us to understand mm-hmm. really the full implications it's having on us and how it's affecting us. Um, and so it just seemed like a interesting inquiry of like, cause when things are in your unconscious, it's usually cause you're suppressing it for some reason. you label as too aggressive or too shameful or um, not allowed or any of that. So if you're feeling that feeling of, I feel lost and I don't know why, I can't really comprehend or process what's happening, just ask yourself, is there something, can I identify anything that I'm not allowing myself to see? I think
1: one thing that's really good about this conversation is grief like anxiety is one of those ones that... If you don't label and identify it, it's one of those ones you can feel like you're drowning in. But if Mm -hmm. you can name it, oh, I'm grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, this is anxiety. Then you cannot literalize all the emotions. And then it helps you kind of be on top of it being like, oh yeah, I'm in a grieving process. I'm in a panic attack. (laughs) Do I make huge decisions in a panic attack or do Mm -hmm. I wait to lower my anxiety before? I think the awareness of both of those things is major.
0: Yeah. And depression, I'm not, I'm going to fumble the actual meaning, but like the Latin roots is like pushing down on, right? Like a pressure of downward pressure. Um, and so it can feel immobilizing and it can feel like, um, I think often with depression, it's, it does feel like something has been lost. It's like, what, what did I have before that I don't have now? And again, there's there's different types of depression. So I don't want to generalize depression at all because I think it comes from many different places in us. But I think if you didn't have depression and then suddenly hit a chapter of depression, sometimes it's really hard to identify, hey, what was the thing there yeah. that instigated that? And so I, I just think, again, that question of, well, what am I grieving potentially But so that's all I had to say on that topic. Now let's see how it ties into (laughs) yours. I feel like we might revisit it. It's
1: so interesting, this angle, because I do feel like there's some like little secret angel connections happening because I um, was feeling that in the story, but you really just named it in a a new way to identify it. So this is pretty left field for
0: you.
1: (laughs) Coming in with Freud and going to Pamela Anderson.
0: Okay, that's a good segue.
1: (laughs) So, first question: Do you know who Pamela Anderson is? Yes and no. What do you know about her? Because I know we're a little different in ages, so so I know very little about um, pop culture. It's
0: embarrassing. You know, she was
1: very big in the nineties, and like yeah, I mean, I feel like if
0: you showed me a picture, I'd know who. So you don't even
1: know know who she is. What she looks like? Not really. No. Okay, everybody, open up your Google. Okay. Because you do have to kind of pinpoint who this person is. Live time. You're going to (laughs) see.
0: I know you guys, some of you might be
1: thinking this is insane. Adam doesn't know who she is because she was arguably the most famous blonde for 20 years. She okay. Familiar.
0: Yeah, she looks familiar. Do you
1: know what show she was on that well, made there's, her?
0: Well, there's there's Baywatch. Yeah. Popped so did up you there. ever
1: watch Baywatch?
0: I never watched Baywatch. No. <laughs>
1: Autumn also didn't really have a TV growing up, except for Channel like Nine, like which is KCTS or something. Yeah. So you so yeah you you weren't exposed to the most pop no, culture when no, you were No, I was
0: living okay. an isolated.
1: Well, life. I'm gonna tell you my understanding of Pamela Anderson okay. from the '90s. Okay. <laughs> she was like this she played this character okay so the first thing I guess is I saw Netflix just came out with this documentary about her called Pamela a love story she's in her 50s now and she's opening up about her life and she's had like high highs low lows a lot of romantic kind of drama and drama um she's a mom she has two kids boys who are grown and her Ex-husband is Tommy Lee, the drummer from Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. So it was like sex, drugs, rock and roll in the 90s. And they were like impulsive and romantic and fiery and mm-hmm. young and um, holding this archetype at the time. So she played this character, C.J. Parker, on uh, which is based off her own personality on um, Baywatch. But the way she was found... So you know I love... Uh, autobiographies, yeah. because I'm always looking at the soul plan and lessons in the development of what that entity mm-hmm. is learning through a lifetime. So when I'm talking about Pamela Anderson, I think we'll probably be talking about it today very differently than most people who are just talking about like the documentary because yeah. I'm always looking at what is this soul learning and doing through that mm-hmm. lifetime, and that's why I love documentaries and I love... I think
0: you're also using your intuition when you read or watch a documentary uh, because you're like, what is their ego story of what's happening at this point in their life? And then what am I intuitively sensing is the potential of why this is happening? And
1: when you have somebody who's really famous, often there's a collective mm, message mm-hmm. through that person's life. So Pamela holding the energy of appearing as the fe- a feminine representative for people as what is sexy, what mm. is a sex symbol the same way that like you could argue Britney Spears did or Marilyn Monroe mm. did, maybe Kim Kardashian's doing it in a different way or who yeah. are these ideas of these social norms that yeah. we're mm-hmm. interpreting as what is sexy. Mm-hmm. And like Marilyn Monroe, Pamela's life is in some ways like, really tragic. Mm -hmm. And so that's also why I'm interested in it because it's what's the soul doing, but it's also what is the collective doing in the mirroring of what she's holding for everybody. And, um, so her story, which is super interesting. She grew up in Canada, I think like Vancouver area, I believe on a little Island. And, um, her parents modeled a toxic relationship with like a lot of like, love, unrequited love through the relationship. But I think they were really young. I'm going to get the details wrong, but they were something like 1920 when Mm -hmm. they were first together pregnant. And there was like physical abuse in their relationship. Mm -hmm. They would like fight and then like, Mm -hmm. but they loved each other and they'd get back together. Mm -hmm. And um, he was an alcoholic, her dad and the mom was like a waitress and the small town where there wasn't many people kind of in a very Northwestery type of place. Uh Um, So she grew up with her brother, like leaving with him out of the house while they were arguing. Mm -hmm. And then she'd come back and they'd be like having sex in this passionate way. And she'd feel like, well, this energy is better than the other energy, but it's also similar in a way. Mm -hmm. So that programming of like love is whatever you know yeah. whatever we emotionally want
0: to call it that. abusive manipulative it can
1: be and also dramatic and high mm-hmm. highs and low yeah. lows and um so that was like her background and looking at the photos and stuff it's interesting to see the soul contracts of the parents and kind of like what they were working through too mm-hmm. so then she goes to a football game or hockey game (laughs) this is where this is where i'm not great with details some Some kind of sports arena game and um she has a t-shirt of the local team on and she's like beautiful i don't know maybe 18 or something like that like young 20 Mm -hmm. i don't know young and um the big tv what do you call that the whatever tron yeah i don't know zooms in on her yeah and everyone starts like cheering, like, We love that girl. Yeah. And um somehow it leads to her like going down on like they come find her and she goes down, and she like does some kind of lotto, like picking names out of a thing, like on the field or wherever yeah. they are. Okay. And then everyone's we love her, we love her. <laughs> and so then the company contacts her the to do like, I don't know what, like a poster and a commercial. I don't, she does a yeah. little, some modeling things as the face of this team that I can't even tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. So then um, somehow Playboy like sees that or whatever. I think there might've been a couple more steps of some more jobs mm-hmm. between then I don't know. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> this is where I'm looking for themes and psychically looking things, so I'm not great with like precision details. Um, But somehow Playboy comes calling and they're like, we want you to fly down here to be like our cover. And we've been looking all over the world for like this next person. And um, so she like leaves without a work visa. And she tells the woman with a letter from Hugh Hefner in her hand, like at the airport, like, why are you going? Cause she has to cross the border, like to America. Oh, mm-hmm. And she's like to work for Playboy, like, and she's expecting them to be excited. And they're like, you can't do that. You don't have like a work visa or whatever. So they like send her back. She goes into the bathroom. She changes her outfit, dress <laughs> to hide. And then she goes back and it's like the same woman, like you're not getting through. So she gets on a Greyhound bus to go from Canada, whatever, Vancouver to Seattle. And they check some people on the bus, but not everyone. So they check someone like before her and behind her, but they like, don't check her. So she like gets through, which is like you cra- from a soul perspective, crazy, right? Where you think of like where she's going and mm-hmm. the destiny of like her what life. Like, um, so then from Seattle, she takes a plane down to LA. She, oh, and I forgot to tell you, spoiler alert, I should say for anyone considering watching this documentary, I'm going to tell you basically all about the documentary. So if you don't want to know about it, turn it off now, go watch it and then come and listen back. But for those of you who might never watch it or just want this kind of with it, here's, here's the story of her life is that she grew up, she had sexual abuse for like a long period of time. I want to say like four years between a young age, like, I don't know what, like, it might be like six to 10 from a babysitter, female babysitter. Mm. So she also has this like shame and she doesn't tell anyone about it. The, the babysitter told her, if you tell, tell your parents, like, you know, don't, and I'll Mm. hurt you or whatever. And, um, so then she tries to kill her with her pen and she tries to like stab her at one point. This babysitter tries
0: to kill the babysitter. Yeah.
1: And, um, Doesn't work, but then she wishes, I hope she dies. I hope she dies. The next day, babysitter dies in a car accident. Wow. (laughs) Which is super interesting in terms of chicken or the egg, soul contracts manifesting. And uh, the extent that then she
0: probably feels responsible and shame and guilt. She lives
1: with my magical mind created, the death.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: I'm sure she had to do therapy later to unravel that it um, reminds
0: me a little bit of you know Mila Angelo going yeah. through sexual abuse them going to court about it and then uh the guy gets out of court i think without being charged and then like a mob kills him because Absolutely. they know what ha- what he had what he did to her and so then she has you know her whole life is
1: about well, and then she goes de- mute de- be- because she's yeah. scared of her voice. Yeah. And then she comes out as like my Angela with like her yeah. voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Cause there's similarities with that mm-hmm. because then she goes down to LA and as a representative of this, what is this feminine? And then what she's holding and carrying the fact that she had sexual abuse, which is so common to the feminine and to women and men on the planet, but yeah. very much also targeted at yeah. The feminine and both women and men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just interesting in terms of all these dynamics going on. And then she, but she's really excited about playboy, which is like being naked and like, mm-hmm. um, really shy and nervous in a certain way with her own abuse. And she was very shy for years, but she says something like, she's like nervous and she starts posing for the first time naked, but she says something like really clicks where she's reclaiming her sexuality and her power in this way that this freedom of being naked and kind of being seen in a certain way allows her to kind of like heal and own something for the first time. And so that's super interesting, too, because I think with nudity and porn and women, there's so many different like ways of potential victimization, trauma, re-traumaing that can happen from initial trauma, but mm-hmm. also it, based on soul contracts and timing, it can also be like a healing experience when it's claimed in a certain way. And yeah. so which we've talked a little bit about,
0: about in the past with like things like S factor where, mm-hmm. uh, they're teaching how to pole dance and reclaim your sexuality and, and be able to, uh, claim that in front of others watching in a way mm-hmm. that's, read power we talked about that in holy yeah.
1: love but i guess mm-hmm. i don't know if we i think we've
0: mentioned podcasts as well mm-hmm. but anyways
1: so then she goes she's like really seen and loved she has these great experiences which i was also thinking is unique to playboy because there's a lot of stories coming out recently of how traumatized women have felt mm-hmm. in playboy but because she's kind of the golden child in terms of chosen as the most beautiful she's treated mm-hmm. really royally and special in most of her encounters from celebrities at the playboy mansion like yeah so she's not having i think the average woman's experience in terms of yeah the mansion so um and there's these women who work for Hef who are kind of like really like you should stay here you have a career which is also not normal for breaking into hollywood mm-hmm. and everything so she Starts to work, get modeling jobs, whatever. And Baywatch comes calling and they wanted, they're like, we think she's perfect for this role. And it's funny because literally they're like reaching out to her and she's like avoiding them and like not showing up. She's like known for not showing up for her auditions. But then eventually she gets a part, which is like, you know, this great break in to the the business role. Um, Then the later cut to she meets out one night Tommy Lee. Mm Mm-hmm drummer for Motley Crue, and she ordered shots. She had she was co-owner in some like bar, and she ordered everybody shots. He thought it was just for her. He comes over, and he licks the side of her face. That's their first... He's happy about the shot. He thinks it's just for him, and he comes over, and he licks the side of her face. Okay. And in this kind of like, rah, badass rock and roll moment. And then she leans over and licks the face of the girl next to her, like joking, going around. So they kind of meet... Initially, at this really heightened charged place, um, he becomes kind of really focused on her, and she doesn't like call him back, but he's leaving messages and Where are you? How can I find you? See you. And then she's like, Well, I can't. I'm going to Cancun for the shoot. He's like, Okay, I'm going. I'm going to Cancun for the shoot. And she's like, You can't go to Cancun for the shoot. And then she goes down there, and she's like hiding from him. He shows up with his friends, and they go around. And he's calling, leaving messages. We're gonna find you. We're going from hotel to hotel, to seek you out. And she was finally like, "Oh, what's the harm? I'll just go out with him one night. It's the last night we're here." She goes out to this club. <laughs> they have this like fun, amazing night, which you know there could be all kind of commentary on that approach and everything. Mm-hmm. They go out to this um, club, basically hit it off, stay in Cancun. The maid... They decide they want to get married. And have you ever felt like this before? No, I've never felt like this before. All this heightened energy. And then her maid of honor is like a girl she meets like in the club. And their friends, they like get married in Cancun. Four days... Within four days of meeting each other. Wow. (laughs) So then come back to LA and it's like a media storm because it's like this ultimate kind of rock and roll impulsivity, this Mm -hmm. bad boy with this symbol coming together. Um, And paparazzi are just after them and then cut to, um, you know, I'm not sure at what point, but he started having some red flags of jealousy. Like he would come to the set Mm -hmm. and he would be, threatened by if she had a kissing scene with someone and they would even change kind of what was supposed to happen in certain scenes. If he was on set, um, eventually he ends up like trashing her trailer one day. Cause he's like mad about what's happening at work, but she gets pregnant and uh, eventually they end up having two boys together, but Somewhere along this process in the beginning, they used to have like videotapes and they would record everything of them just like being together and their romance. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point they realize that the safe downstairs has been taken, which had his guns, but also all of these tapes and other important things to her. And so then they get months, they, you know, tell the police nothing's happening. Then they get something from a guy who runs like a porn company or something like for $5 million will buy the rights of your tape. So like this person, whoever is shopping it to different companies and they're like, no, we're not going to do that. So they don't sign for that cut to this person, like basically starts selling the DVDs. So now without, it's like stolen tape and they're selling it and they have no recourse there's never been a case like this before. So basically, you know, she goes to sue to stop the process and goes through this traumatic experience of all these like men telling her, and this is a woman with sexual abuse history, because you've been naked in magazines, you you don't get this. We don't care that these are your tapes that are stolen. Like you like being naked basically and being seen in this way. So, (laughs) you know, we're not going to like, You don't win the rights of this, which is insane. And I feel like hopefully I think would be different now, but also, I don't know, because things are radically unfair around that kind of stuff in legal systems. But anyway, um, so she was so exhausted. They had gone through a miscarriage. She didn't want to keep fighting for it at that time. So she just, they signed away the rights, no money. They're giving away basically their tapes just to get out of this legal situation and between Tommy where he grabs or, or whatever and she's holding the baby. So she decides to leave the relationship mm-hmm. and yet she lives the rest of her life, several other marriages without ever fully like you could say mourning him. Oh, okay. And she's in the melancholiness of it, mm-hmm. of like trying to make these other relationships work, but they're never really working because no one's Tommy, mm-hmm. but also she refuses to live with abuse yeah and so her whole life is kind of where did love go and this is why Um, i think it's interesting from kind of a feminine perspective of what she's holding and the symbol of that and also her birth chart i looked up because i was just to see what major what is her moon and venus doing in her chart um but basically it's like it's interesting because watching it from a jungian perspective i'm really like wow there's this initiation happening between them and there are these soul contracts, but also there's a lot of projection and yeah. I'm thinking, Oh, I wish I could like help her talk to her about this. Cause she seems so stuck and unable to process consciously what yeah. this is. Mm-hmm. She goes back to her mom's whenever she wants clarity up in Canada. And so mm-hmm. the film kind of starts where she goes back up to Canada, no makeup. She's in her fifties and she's like, my whole life has been really sad and I can't get back to these feelings. And she's playing videos of like clips of her and Tommy and the babies. But she says, whenever I go back up to my mom's, I get a lot of clarity and she goes, I think from, Melancholy to morning. Yeah. As they're recording this because she's having these aha's watching through the films and the Identifying footage.
0: what had been going on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And she and I'm thinking, oh, I wish she knew like about projection because she hasn't mm-hmm. worked it all the way of how yeah. to release that off of her relationship. And then I was thinking, oh, it'd be great if she knew. Robert A. Johnson's work, who's known for the depth Jungian psychologist who talks about projection. And then she quotes Robert A. Johnson. And she says, and I thought this was so interesting. She's like, when I read Robert A. Johnson, so he wrote uh, three books, we, he, and she about Mm -hmm. feminine masculine psychology, and also inner gold about projections. So he's kind of known as one of the most forefront people talking about projections. When I read him, he wrote romantic love is not sustainable it was the worst thing i've ever read and i thought that's so interesting because it's like the projection starting to pop but it's not the kind of unraveling of the human yeah parts there's so
0: many dynamics and layers like i feel like we could do a whole dissertation on like what you just said by peeling away the layers energetically looking at things that are going on and also how it relates to like our whole culture because she was like became a representative
1: of that
0: holding that for our Mm -hmm. culture i sort of you know thinking about that morning melancholy thing i think that when you are in a emotionally abusive manipulative relationship sometimes you are uh ping-ponging swaying between these poles of like the things that are in your unconscious coming up like aggression or shame or guilt or whatever it is, violence and things uh, to then uh, being, uh, going back into your conscious. So I think sometimes there can be this feeling like you're being touched or seen in a place where nobody else has. Yeah. Because in some ways you're exposing bits of your unconscious or uh, being seen from somebody else's, inner unconscious like it's when it comes to jealousy or these feelings so it can feel like there's this depth of passion there so i think that sometimes when people leave a relationship like that and then go to like a secure relationship with secure attachment where there's less vacillation where there's more of integrated things it can feel like there's less passion there and it can and if and so it can be that I think the melancholy thing is almost the perfect way to identify that because it can be like, well, something's gone and I don't know what it is and I should be okay with this more healthy relationship. Mm -hmm,
1: But it's boring and bland. And I, Robert Johnson talks about the difference between, um, sugar pebbles love and granola love, like oatmeal love. Mm -hmm. One's sustainable, one's high highs and crashes with sugar. But there's a third option, which is like us and what we are, which is, I would say for us, romantic love is sustainable, but it's the difference of meeting on a soul level and not an egoic projective level. But also you have to do a lot of work to get there in the sense of like, you know, Tommy Lee has violence issues. Is he really unraveling and, you know, working on that? Is it safe to even be together? Yeah,
0: that word romance, I feel like, can be taken very different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think actually this was like a huge part of Holy Love because I opened up in the opening with Romeo and Juliet on purpose. Because I think that romance can be seen as so uh, trivial and so um, passing and surface level and it's like a fairy tale. It's, it's like, not real. like, are you a
1: romantic?
0: Yeah. And that at some point we should all lo- uh, leave a romantic idealism behind. To become an adult. But then at the same time, I think we have this deep archetypal imprinting in us that will always be attached to romance, that always watches the movies where, you know, there's, it ends with a kiss and is deeply, deeply uh, ignited by these images. And just a side note there, uh, there's a big distinction between Freud and Jung and this is a place where their relationship, it was, it was one of the biggest causes of their separation as a as a friendship was that Freud was really mechanistic as he really saw life as um as cause and effect as in something happened to you in childhood and you know then the results were a b and c and so if you take the situation like Pamela you know you could draw those clear conclusions from uh looking at it purely externally of like well, she had these, you know, abusive parents that were not uh, abusive to each other, that were not modeling true love, and so then she wasn't able to see that. So that would, or, or to attain that, to um, mature into a healthy relationship there. So that would be, I think, a Freudian take on it. But Jung really believed that part of our impulse, part of our desire for romance, part of that archetypal imprinting of why we're lit up by Romeo and Juliet is a craving to reunite with the divine. This feeling of wanting to find God in each other and to to feel that, you know, I think it comes down to wanting to feel whole. I think it's, it's very taboo in our contemporary culture to say, I want to feel whole through my relationship, but... I absolutely believe that that's possible if you can do it well, which means really watching all the projections and everything. It's finding that spark in each other, leaning towards that, growing that, uh, nurturing that. And so I think what happens a lot, talking about this idea of melancholy, uh, especially after a confusing, emotionally abusive relationship or just a relationship that didn't work out and we don't really know why, I think initially we have this this desire and this assumption that something about it will make us whole. And then when it doesn't work out, there's a feeling of, oh, that was so silly of me to ever imagine that, to ever think that was possible to, and that I should be more mature and more adult and I should give up my romantic idealism. But I think it's often because first we may have misplaced our desire on the on the wrong person. That person's not the person that's gonna be the best fit for helping us find the divine within each other, but often because we just don't have the tools to really find that within each other, to really navigate the ego. Um, you know, mis- the misguiding of the ego. And that's really what holy love is all about, is like, how do you navigate that to find that? So I really encourage people to not give up on that desire. And I think that the melancholy that we experience when you think about an ex lover or an old relationship of like, like, I lost something there. I'm not quite sure what it was. I know what was wrong. I can identify all the things that went wrong, but I can't identify that feeling of loss of what was right even if I know this wasn't the healthiest relationship with me, there was something there that felt potentially right that I've, I've lost and I'm not carrying that forward into my future relationships. Uh, You know, it's like that Cat Stevens song, the first cut is the deepest of like the first relationship. Often we don't allow ourselves to be as vulnerable again after that. So I think we we do have some a lot of people carry an unconscious grieving of that, of the loss of that, when really I think it's entirely possible to bring that back into our lives, to call that back in. I would say holy love is the guidebook to that. It's not about giving up romantic idealism. It's about finding true romance. Right. And so when Robert Johnson is talking about romantic relationships, he I think he's talking about projective. Um, romantic relationship which I think you can take that deep image that's embedded in us all that image that's like I really want that depth of love to be touched in that place and you can project it on somebody like Tommy Lee or something and then feel like he's matching that picture because he's showing up in dramatic ways and shaking up your life and shaking up the normal way you've been living in you know
1: in it, but it's also not I'm, it's hard to put this in words but like and you did this with me in the beginnings and like yeah. you're saying when you feel like you've had that especially if you're young to receive mm-hmm. that imprinting it's hard to match it ever again and so I had my first love that I interpreted as this Romeo and Juliet story and mm-hmm. when we were first together I was like you know I'm always gonna like have a place in my heart for him. And I was still had some projection and holding you back with that story. And yeah. you were very much like, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really shocking. Like, what do you mean? No, I'm not. I'm always going to have this nostalgia and this melancholy in a particular way to use yeah. as a defense against you in love. You're taking this away from me, but you really were pursuing me in that masculine feminine dynamic of like, no, I'm going to like continue to not out of ego, but just really show you what is the difference between love and projection through time and, you know, trust. And it was, even though I had already been reading Robert Johnson and doing Jungian Psychotherapy, it was through the meeting of you and holding that, that it really unraveled. Yeah. And I really saw, I think one thing too, is that people think a projection projections almost like quick or easy to lose, but it's like deep, intense work over a long period of time. And it yeah. can go as deep as the ocean. What's also interesting is the imprinting from her parents where they ended up remarrying much later as adults and Mm. shifting and growing together. So my sense is it's a lot less dramatic and violent than it was when it's in there now and whatever their seventies, whatever. So it's like, Mm -hmm. she also had this modeling of like, but her mom told her, she's like, um, well, with a lot of your other marriages, you don't have the love. Mm -hmm. So it's just so interesting. I just want to say for this. I just
0: want to do a side note. I think I would have had more. You were aware that that first relationship you were in had, emotional manipulation in it and if it was a healthy relationship i think i would have had more space and tolerance for you to be like oh there's a place in my heart for him like because i would have been like oh good you know i don't think i would have had a because it didn't come from like possession or jealousy it was no this doesn't feel right to me right it feels like there's still a confusion somewhere in your unconscious of who he was.
1: It's hard to talk about the stuff because it is so
0: depth
1: and nuanced, all of it. So it does, it is easy to make generalizations about statements. And I think when it comes to relationships, there really aren't rules. It's much more about what feels right for that person in that situation. So I think that's a good kind of thing to take away. But her chart, I wanted to look at what Venus and moon was doing in terms of the archetypal nature of what was happening and. She is a cancer. Her son is in cancer in the first house, which is interesting um, because that's like big personality kind of ready for the world stage. Her son is squared Saturn, which does mean kind of like some hardship and what life would be her Venus, which is kind of that sexual feminine and also love and home is in the fourth house square Neptune, which is interesting because that's about being romantic and liking um, mm-hmm. Neptune's very, like, lovely fantasies as opposed to, like, hard truth like a Capricorn energy. Yeah. Um. So she had a lot of... She can idealize people mm-hmm. and then potentially be disappointed by that. But it also makes her that lightning bolt for that romantic energy. I think that's why her character and people do love her is she kind of has this it could be interpreted as a ditzy blonde, but it's really smart. Actually, when you see her in interviews kind of holding her own, it's Mm. almost devastating how she's defending herself against like Jay Leno or, you know, putting everyone, putting her into the stereotypical box, Mm -hmm. but she's really smart. Um, her moons in the 11th house in Aries opposition Mars, which is the masculine in that warrior energy. Um, So her emotions are kind of sometimes contrasting with logic. Yeah. So that challenge of how do those two things come together? um, She's really about feelings. And then Jupiter's in the third house, which is, I can really feel from her, the sense of this freedom and explore and travel. And she's really open-minded and open-hearted. I think the way she holds her feminine has a lot of vulnerability forward in it, where Mm. it feels really like... Uh, yeah, just really transparent. And I think there's like a beauty in that, that mm-hmm. it's really goes beyond physical stuff. And yeah. Well. So that was just for the people who um, understand a little bit of astrology. I thought it was interesting to see how much her life and path is like reflected yeah. in her chart. I think
0: too, that the fact she was this major sex symbol, just tying it also into Freud, how Freud really believed that's that so many, almost all of our issues came from, repressed sexual libido things in our unconscious and that we were it was really all our neurosis were things that were trying to remedy or fix that or satisfy that within ourselves so i think especially in um relationships or even if it's projected on like somebody famous as a sexual image they can start kind of hitting these places in our unconscious that we become addicted to them you know or something because it feels like something is so charged there something so real is happening because I think it's touching a place in our unconscious that is often untouched yeah that is often unexposed unless it's in a dramatic sort of situation um so I I just think that it is really interesting that I opened with Freud and then you took us on the Pamela Anderson journey because it felt like it feels like a lot of it is Identifying, becoming conscious of what that is, so it doesn't hold power over you in the same way, and so that you can properly mourn those things, and
1: which she's just starting to do at the edge of, end of the documentary. You see yeah. her really having her aha right in the last five minutes of like. Yeah. Oh, maybe my whole life was trying to make everything Tommy. And maybe she says, Mm -hmm. I'd rather be alone than to not be with this love. And that's where she kind of leaves it as like, I'm aware of what this love is. I'm aware where I'm at in this process. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be chasing it as a phantom. Yeah. Um, But what's next? Oh, and then I guess, ironically, that's when Broadway calls because she's kind of getting stir crazy. And then Mm -hmm. she goes and she plays Roxy Hart on Broadway in Chicago, which has like all of these other synchronistic messages Mm -hmm. with her character because Roxy's character is about really like... It's interesting, there's one part where the musical director's like, see, it's about me. With Roxy, it's always about just being selfish and being seen. She's like, no, I think Roxy's about claiming her independence in a new way, and Mm -hmm. she wants to be seen but it for a true place in herself. Yeah. So it just felt really like so synchronistic that what she was working. And then she says on stage, when I was playing Roxy, I was really scared, but I was, she, they show a picture of before the sexual abuse. And she was Mm -hmm. bringing that inner child on stage with her to really play that role and heal that. So it was a really powerful documentary. I really recommend it. Mm -hmm. I think you can look at it from different levels of just, Oh, Pamela Anderson bombshell from the nineties, or you can look at it as what are the archetypes involved in the healing and how does society kind of support or block that awareness for yeah. for the feminine
0: yeah it's, there's so much to talk <laughs> there's about there's so
1: many there. to, I know ways I, when know, I, was...
0: I was it's interesting cuz I almost was going to bring up the topic of like sexual addiction on this podcast and I was like that's too big yeah. for this yeah but um I might visit it I keep thinking about Marilyn Monroe when you're talking me too
1: i mean it was and, and, very similar a lot of their yeah. life
0: and i think about projective identification which is the process of when you're feeling projection on you, yeah. You start adapting to that identity and mm-hmm. becoming that identity, which I think is it also happens Brittany to Spears. a lot of um, empaths, yeah. Very easily. Um, so just just a note for those empaths out there: if you are in a room with somebody and you notice you start acting differently than you're normally acting, that's something about your behavior shifts around different people. There might be a projective identification you're stepping into there. But Marilyn Monroe, you can feel that part of her that is lost, uh, that she ad- doesn't know. I I know I'm making some jumps here. This is just my intuitive take. But she doesn't have a strong sense of self underneath matching all of those ident- identifications. Well,
1: some would say when there's a vacancy of self, yeah. it makes you a really good channel. Because you can yeah. become the container for... The collective. And I yeah. think she was like scary good at that. Everyone yeah. who knew her talked about it was like, she's like, I can just become Marilyn. And like yeah. the ability to just channel this energy was different than Norma Jean. Yeah. And I think Pamela definitely carries that.
0: Yeah. I think a little. Where I feel like maybe somebody like Dolly Parton, I feel like has taken some sexual projection, but then also. Mm-hmm. Uh, has a sense of self has has brought that sense of self and also been able to work that projection. Have been like I'm not going to like just adapt to this projection. I'm going to hold it and do like energy work back. Which actually I would it. say
1: Pamela does better than Marilyn. Like yeah. when you watch her in the interviews, mm-hmm. she's running this archetype, but then she's also really holding boundaries with. Yeah. She does have a strong sense of self in in some kind of a particular way. So it's really wild to watch the nuance of the energetics.
0: I guess one thing I'd say about Pamela is, you know, Jung talked about the collective unconscious. So it's like what was she working through personally, but then what was like all of the world in America? particularly working through through like Baywatch, you yeah. know, and like through watching her on this journey, because in a way she's holding that archetype.
1: Well, and um, even the power of this documentary on Netflix, I think, will help shift the collective around who she is and what that was in an evolutionary yeah. way for a lot of people, because there's a weird timeline where she was like, I don't ever want to think about the sex sex tapes being sold. And it was just like last year Not a documentary, but like a show came out where it's like Pam and Tommy, I think it's Mm -hmm. called, talking all about what happened there with a different actress playing her part. And she was so upset by it because it was like, I don't want to think about this or go back to it. She didn't Mm -hmm. give permission or anything for that story. So you're seeing in this documentary... That coming out, she was refusing to watch it, but she's mm-hmm. like, her son's watching it and telling her about what how they explain the story, her story, someone else again, wow. explaining her story. Yeah. And so while they're filming this documentary, and then it's like, she's like, I'm probably not even going to watch this documentary, mm-hmm. but it's nice to put it in my own words. So I think there's that feeling of... Yeah, I think she was really... Pinpointed and assumed to be something she wasn't. People assume the story is that she made money off that tape. Maybe she planted the tape to get famous, mm-hmm. and it really isn't that. So I yeah. think. Well, yeah. I think
0: Young would also be noticing that that documentary came out at this point in time. So it's like, what collectively are we going through? What are we realizing? What uh, you know, I think also with the Me Too movement coming, what what is coming? To light that was in the shadow before what are we becoming conscious of that was suppressed into the unconscious i
1: think anyone who watches this documentary will really see her differently and also Mm. understand their assumptions on her and the feminine from 20 years ago i know i did like Mm -hmm. i didn't like pinpoint or think anything negatively of her but i definitely have a new appreciation for kind of like yeah what she was working through and what was going on with her
0: yeah Okay, well, so. <laughs> I think we'll end our conversation there. If you want to investigate soul communion, removing projections, we have our new book, Holy Love, The Essential Guide to Soul-Fulfilling Relationships. We have a whole section dedicated to removing projections, talking about the uh, romantic archetype. I was thinking, how can, can I ship this pool? to
1: Pamela? Because I was like, this is where she's <laughs> at right now. She's, yeah. touched with, she's touched in with Robert Johnson, and so she yeah. understands projection versus something else but also well to some degree but i think it's like there's also the miracle and magic of meeting soul to soul while also being discerning with your human boundaries and what you need and and the sublimation of instead of projecting out the god or the self with a capital s image this kind of jungian terminology for that i'm speaking Mm. but how to reclaim that through that inner process That's what she's doing right now. And that's what holy Love's about is really finding the miracle, finding love, finding the eternal part of us that's bigger and brighter than all the life stuff, but also holds that too.
0: Uh, You know, in many ways, holy love is a workbook. I think in many ways it's, it starts by trying to really identify that part in ourselves, that eternal part, the part that's like, can we meet each other here? Can we see each other here? Can we, reacquaint ourselves with that essence but then the middle section is now how do we start peeling back all the layers and healing where our human and ego is at yeah how do we start healing our inner child how do we start removing projections and so yeah. it really is a systematic approach so if you know pamela anderson send her our <laughs> <book>. <laughs> yeah
1: but well. yeah i think the reason we're passionate about it is that's why we wrote the book because we like it works and it's real and mm-hmm. it is helpful and it can actually really. Be emancipating yeah. when you kind of put it all together. Yeah,
0: and I'm not just trying to pitch the book here because it's just something I'm very well. Very that's passionate what I was thinking. About. It's
1: like this is why we wrote it because yeah. we believe and know it actually heals. And in
0: the very beginning, what I wanted to capture in that intro is this idea that when we're young, we often carry that romantic idealism. We often carry that image, that archetypal image of who's that person that can touch Mm -hmm. me in this deep, deep place. And then when we're disappointed by love or we have a experience where we projected that on somebody where it wasn't really our person or we assumed that was our soulmate, our twin flame, our, our life partner um but they really weren't it was just a projection then we often throw it all out and we often judge it all as bad we often think romanticism was false and we shouldn't have believed in that and so then often we see relationships after that as like compromises and so and i think that's what a lot of couples therapy can go into that realm of kind of like well how do we compromise with each other and find a neutral ground
1: that's less passionate Well, and I would say that's what disappointed me when I read Robert Johnson. I think why Pamela said she hated reading that because it's like romantic love's not sustainable when the projection spot but it's also are you introduced to the divinity of the soul because once that happens yeah. romantic love is sustainable and magic yeah. is real but it's a whole new it's a, di- a little different be like santa claus isn't real versus the spirit of christmas is real you do have to make this leap yeah. between the literalization of it being this one thing into expansion of energy of understanding how it's always working you and coming yeah. through and available and also can be literal through a person yeah. but you have to know where to look and you have to do your inner work and take accountability and do all the things and
0: which we literally wrote in the intro that like soul soul love is the most sustainable type of love. And one way I would describe it it, as you lock on energetically to each other's true nature, to their, their soul essence, to the that part of them that you fell in love with initially. It's like what do you love about them as an essence? Not about what they do, how they act, what their behavior is, but as an essence what is it yeah. that that attracts you guys to each other. And then it's more easy to identify everything else that's sort of false behavior that's misaligned with each other's true nature. Because if you're if you can recognize each other's true nature, then you're like, oh, when they are in this sort of neurotic little spiral or when they have anxiety or when they are caught up in a depressive mood or whatever, I can see where this is not fully aligned with who they want to be or who they are meant to be because I'm holding that for them. And
1: I would say our work is an evolution of Robert Johnson's work because I was reading him at 16 through 22 trying to run and understand my first love through that system and needing that. And we do address and talk about projection and Mm -hmm. thank God for him and his work around projection. But also I think... His work can be a little clinical in the sense of where's the magic? Where did the magic go? We're humans. We need to be connected. And even though a lot of Jungians would say, oh, it's there. It's more metaphorical. I think there's something about us that is no literal. Like it is the energy work. It is connecting energetically to the divine Mm -hmm. and running it through the body. So it's, I think, water in the desert for people. And a lot of people probably won't understand this conversation the last five minutes. But I feel like the people who do understand it will be like, Oh my God, thank God. Because that's what it was for me when I kind of put those pieces together and figured it out. It's like love is real. Love is eternal. And there's something wholeheartedly we can trust in that, but it's also you have to know how to see it and and do the work.
0: I would say soul is a deeper level within us than the unconscious. And that's something that is very controversial, I think, among Jungians and everybody. But I so I would say when I say that there's people that touch us in our unconscious sometimes, even if it's abusive or unhealthy mm-hmm. that there's, so then we can relegate that to the same area within ourselves that soul is. But I would say that when we're touched on the soul level, it's, it ignites that deep, deep, deep place within us. And there's a, there's a bit of remembering Oh yeah. There's a bit of shedding all our stories for a moment where suddenly we're snapped out of our conscious way of being of our, our normal narratives. Um, and there's a feeling of, um, oh, I'm remembering you, and I didn't realize that you're what I wanted. Yeah. Because we have all the stories of what we think we want. We have our sexual libido lit up, and we think we want that sexual projection of Pamela Anderson or whoever's holding it. Or we think we want that emotional abusive relationship because it was... it. It broke us out of our egoic identity for a moment. There was relief in, in that and a, and a rush of excitement with that. But
1: And I would say true love, when it's really on a soul level, isn't about chasing a high. Yeah. It's about surrendering to what is true. And those mm-hmm. are very different things. They can feel very confusingly similar. Yeah. So that's the work is navigating, discerning what's what, because not all people are safe to surrender to. So it's about identifying who is and who isn't. And then also it's ironic because even if Tommy Lee's abusive and maybe she should never be with him in this lifetime and in a certain way regarding safety, that doesn't mean there weren't also true soul moments or connections between them. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated because it's definitely not black or white. And there's a lot of conscious mourning that goes Mm -hmm. into that process when you're becoming conscious of what was what
0: I would say whenever you soul journal, you are making conscious the morning. I would say you're Mm -hmm. identifying because you're asking a different place of your mind, a different place in your being for information about whatever's going on for you. Even if it's a feeling of, I feel anxious, I don't know why, so what's going on? I would say that's a way of
1: identifying, making conscious your morning process. I mean, just for Um, a quick three soul journaling questions that are practical and aligned with this podcast would be... Maybe something about mourning like soul. Is there anything that I'm feeling is melancholy that you can help me understand as conscious mourning? Mm -hmm. A second one, if you're interested in any kind of this romantic stuff is soul. What do you want to tell me about in my relationship or in my longing for relationship? Where am I leading from projection and reaction to a wound Mm -hmm. versus what love is really calling me towards?
0: Yeah.
1: Three, is there anything that I need to do to surrender or to become conscious of in order to align myself with that love
0: yeah and if you're already in a relationship the question could be uh what am i longing for from an egoic level but what am i longing for from a soul level and see if there's a difference between that and then ask your soul what's what's the difference and what's the healing space between those two differences okay well i think we'll end our conversation there thanks for listening everyone and you can like and subscribe to holy and human Podcasts.